Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler and this is Ruler Conversations. I'm joined today by James Start, Ruler's raving photojournalist. So, James, you've just spent the weekend finding out that Provence is not all sunshine and warm evenings drinking pastis. Uh, what have you been up to? <laughs> it isn't. Um, I went back down to the Tour de la Provence, and this is a race I really love. It's one of my, as soon as it, it started, I think, in 2016, and I was like, I've got to do that race. I mean, French Provence, bike racing, two of my favorite things. What's not to like, right? <laughs> the, we- the weather? <laughs> Something not to like this year. It We had two days on the back of a moto and some of the most glacial driving rains that I've I've ever had to get through. The whole time, you're just trying to stay warm and keep your cameras dry and most of the time not doing a very good job of either. But, you know, I was happy with my images. You can see them. Um, we did a gallery yesterday on Rouleur. Even in the rain, Provence is stunning. This is a race that became very popular very quickly because the racing is just hard enough. I was sitting down with Sam Bennett and he said, well, this is a really good race because it's just hard enough. You actually get real racing miles. He said, you can go to UAE or some of these countries. And if there's no wind there, you can be sitting around pushing 130 watts for five hours or four hours and not getting a whole lot out of it. Whereas you're going to get something out of this race, period. All of that makes sitting on the back of a motor and freezing rain for two days worthwhile. Yeah. And it looks like Matt Pedersen was thriving in the conditions. If you can all remember how he won the world championships in Yorkshire in like very similar conditions. So he's really good at that. And he's just flying. I mean, he had just won the 12 de Bessage. You want to pick uh, somebody for the classics? Look to Mads Pedersen. He's going to be on fire. Yeah. And he, yeah, he won the prologue and then two stages, one in a, a big sprint and one in a sprint from a group. And then he, he didn't, didn't win the last stage, but won overall so obviously good for him and and the terrain it's kind of grippy without being mountainous down there isn't it well it's you know it depends i mean in the past we've had finishes on the montfontoul so they can find the climbs if they want but they opted for more rolling uh, terrain this this time and then the final day around the camargue the marshlands of the rhone river valley as flat as flat can be but you know the race got all broken up because it's you know heavy winds and you know i mean it's not every day you see a race leader 
driving the pace at the front, but Mads, Mads Pedersen was, was at the front driving the pace yesterday on several occasions, just to show how strong he is. Well, I love Provence as well. It kind of makes me think of summer, like the lavender fields, blue skies, evenings drinking pastis or, or rosé wine. It's what I love about bike races. It, it does take us to these places. Recommend all Ruler Conversations listeners to go and check out this part of France. It's absolutely beautiful, and normally the weather is much better than James had to suffer. But it's a big week for us at Rouleau magazine because the first edition of 2024 is out now. It's our 125th magazine, number 125, and the title is Cycling Will Change the World. It's packed with great features, all the good stuff, and I would suggest to everyone listening to the podcast, if you're not already a subscriber, go to rouleau.cc and hit the subscribe button. If you subscribe, you're supporting our endeavour to continue to make the world's best cycling magazine. And as a faithful listener to Rulo Conversations, if you enter the code PODCAST15, you can get 15% off the normal price of a subscription. Subscribe, we'll keep doing what we're doing, which is amazing words, brilliant pictures, all elegantly laid out. And we're going to talk uh, about the new magazine, James, in today's podcast. We're going to leaf through it, discuss the features. We'll drop in a bit of audio from some of our interviewees and hopefully give you a bit of an idea what the magazine is about and inspire you to subscribe. But first, the magazine is called Cycling Will Change the World. Quite a broad statement, but James, how did cycling change your world? Well, it became my, my, my métier, as we say, for one, and so it changed my life uh, dramatically on a personal level. I don't think about cycling 24-7, and yet it is like breathing to me. Everything I do has something to do about bikes. It's my main level of fitness. It's a uh, frequent mode of transportation. I have no car in Paris, so it's all public transportation and bike, and that's a very concrete choice that I made decades ago, to be honest with you. And it's the most beautiful sport in the world. Between, you know, fitness, uh, transportation, and stunning entertainment, it's a pretty big part of my life. I'd agree with that. In my case, yeah, the sport inspires me. I love doing it for fitness. I love the feeling of, of being fit and pedaling hard. I'd say one of the main effects it's had is it made my world bigger and it made my world better. When I was a teenager, before I became a cyclist, you know, my world was essentially where I could walk to. It was a fairly, fairly small world. I mean, my, I was lucky enough that my family took me to France on holiday a few times. We travelled around the UK a bit. So I wasn't just stuck in Exeter being a bored teenager, but in general, my world was between my house, my school and my friends. And suddenly when I became a cyclist, I gained access to vast swathes of territory. It enabled me to get all around town. It enabled me to get out of town to different towns and the spaces in between. But something else I've realised about cycling, and it's an area I've increasingly become interested in, is that cycling is also very important politically. Because forward-thinking politicians in towns and cities of all over the world have realised that cycling is a magic bullet for a well-run public sphere. And promoting cycling and building infrastructure to enable people to cycle means a lot of things. It means that pollution is reduced, people are healthier, uh, we reduce the impact of sedentary lifestyles like obesity and diabetes, we have to spend less money on health service, uh, we've reduced traffic jams. Yeah, you live in Paris, James, so you know all about traffic jams, but my home city of Exeter is also a traffic jam because there are too many people trying to fit too many cars into a finite space and it's based on a roman and medieval street plan so it just doesn't work traffic jams waste time and money they make people unhappy cycling reduces noise pollution it improves mental health uh, no substitute for counseling 
but you know in my case certainly it keeps me on with a level of equilibrium makes you richer if you're not driving and cycling instead especially for short journeys around town you're just not spending money on petrol cars cause a lot of injury and serious problems in in, in the uk alone i think twenty five thousand people a year are killed or seriously injured on our roads every year so encouraging and facilitating and enabling cycling like i said at the start it's it's a magic bullet and that's what i mean by cycling changing the world and that's what we've got in this magazine we've got a set of features in the middle which talk about how important cycling is just for getting from a to b for regular people but let's talk about the actual magazine and go through it we'll we'll get to the active travel section of the magazine as we get through it but the magazine has dropped made a massive thudding noise on my doormat as as usual and as always it's a thing of absolute beauty and Enrique Adele our art editor wanted to kind of convey a feeling of revolution and communicating that widespread desire for for the world to change and that kind of sense of optimism by having it as a kind of placard held aloft by hand clearly a cyclist hands because they're wearing a a cyclist mitt and it's just very simple very striking um, with the words cycling will change the world stenciled on like the the signs you see on street demonstrations the first big feature of the magazine is not to do active travel it's an interview with Elisa Longo Borghini one of the most experienced well-established and one of the most successful cyclists in the women's world tour i've reminded myself of her palmares when we ran this feature and it's kind of easy to forget she's she's not demi volloing or Annemiek van vleuten but when you look at what she's won it's pretty much everything she's won flanders roubaix strade bianche trofeo binder and Prue, which are you know they, those are five of the biggest one-day races in the world she's had podiums at the world's and olympics seven times national tt champ in italy four times national road race champ and we got the opportunity to not just interview her but spend a bit bit of quality time with her when she came to rule her life at the end of last year rachel jarry who wrote this piece our staff writer she suggested to elisa longo borghini what you know what what would you like to we've got a morning what would you like to do in london that would be interesting for you and we can go and do the interview there and he said you know i'd like to go up the london eye and which is the big the big wheel in central London. It turned into a bit of a little trek family outing because what Rachel didn't really realise is that not only Elisa was going to come along, but uh, Jacob Mosca, her husband, also a professional cyclist, Lizzie Dignan came along with her children. So Rachel ended up shepherding you know, half of the little trek team and their families across London, like like a school trip, ending up at the London Eye. Got this great interview with. Elisa Longo-Borghini. I think it really added context. She's obviously very relaxed and a real privilege to have her in the magazine. Moments like that, you get a real sense of who the person, these people are, because uh, we're not just focusing on bike racing and victories. And they're, you know, super relaxed because they're doing something really cool. Yeah, and she's super relaxed as well. She's pretty funny. She doesn't try to be a comedian, but she, she she's just got a very kind of light touch and seems to be an optimistic, positive individual. And that always comes across and she she seems to be having fun as a professional cyclist and she didn't she didn't come into the sport at a time when it was particularly big it was it was a hard route in she had certain advantages that her elder brother who's actually 10 years older than her um, they're born on the same day actually got the same birthday uh, her odd brother paolo longo borghini was a respected professional um, not a big race winner but very very respected with a long career so he had she had her to 
guide him, facilitate, help with training. On the other hand, she wasn't instantly good, and that's that's hard. Um, it's becoming increasingly hard because because the expectations on young riders these days. But it was hard for her to become a pro because she didn't shine immediately. She had to work her way in, and that's always difficult. So, yeah, that that all comes across in the interview, and I I think it gives a real sense of where she's at with her career and how she's got there. And the next feature in the magazine is one of yours, James. It's a headline is, I am too old to be quiet, which is something you and I can both identify with. We're both way too old to be quiet. But it's an interview and exclusive shoot with Primoz Roglic. And before you tell us about the interview, you know I'm a sucker for a a good opening spread in a magazine. The colours, the background, him and his team kit of this this is right up my street and you you can you can see it on a computer screen but you've got to feel the magazine and you know to, to really understand how great this opening spread is absolutely loved it but you spent some time with him you interviewed him tell us about that experience well thank you uh, uh for the uh, the kind words about the opening spread you know you always got irons in the fire uh that's that's part of our craft and one of them was trying to get uh, something exclusive with primos uh early in the year with his new bora team because it was obviously one of the big 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 transfers of the year and one that changes the face of the men's peloton because you know at the end of this at the end in september last year we were looking at like this huge monopoly with a fusion perhaps between Sudal, uh, Quickstep, and Jumbo Visma, and everybody's like, oh, there's not going to be any more competition out there. And then all of a sudden, that falls through, and Primoz, one of the big, big leaders of the team, moves to Bora. All of a sudden, the Peloton has expanded much more and has become more competitive, and, and it's, it's tremendous. And, the, and, and, and obviously, Primoz going to Bora is, is a very good fit because they have a lot of good GC riders, so they can support him. So I thought this was, you know, we had, we really want, needed to get this story. The one thing that's always impressed me about Primoz is, is how he handles defeat. I saw him minutes after he lost the tour on the final time trial in 2020. Instantly, he put the defeat in perspective. And then I was with him, I uh, was on a moto in Perinice the year after, where I think two stages already, he was heading to, to victory, and then he crashed twice on the technical roads around in the back hills of Nice on the final stage. I told my motor driver, let's wait. Because, you know, I expected to see him all dejected, surrounded by his teammates, you know, hands on the shoulders, just rolling him in. No, he was all alone, just driving it to the finish. His shorts were tattered, and he was not going to give up a second, even though he'd lost the race. And again, minutes later, what do I see him in the mix zone with his kid in his arm. So I was, I've been really impressed with the way he handles defeat. And, and he gave me this amazing quote. He said, every time I lose, I tell myself, I'm one step closer to winning. You have to lose to know how to win. I just thought that was really profoundly positive and profoundly constructive and, and said a lot about who he is. I also find him fascinating and enigmatic, kind of implacable, very resilient, but also quite, he's quite relaxed as well. I kind of, I, I find it really hard to define. He's, it's quite slippery how he kind of moves between those those different aspects of his character. And I think, you know, our public perception of him might be a bit contradictory because of all those things. It's like sometimes in his racing, I find him quite relentless and implacable and therefore distant. I find it hard to empathise and identify with him. On the other hand, 
when he got beat by Pogacar that time, or when he crashed in Paris, he, he's, he's, had, he's had his fair share of bad luck and disappointments. They kind of humanised him, and we all think he's a tragic figure, and he's, he's not, that's the thing, he's, he's actually not a tragic figure. He, he's just Primoz Roglic, he, he is all those things. Maybe we overcompensated with that defeat and overhumanised him, because he's, he's, he's a, a little bit distant. And I think that's what comes across in his portrait. It's kind of, I think he's enigmatic, and it probably says more about us, than it does about him, about our perceptions of him. And he's he's just he's just cracking on. I mean, he won the Giro last year. And in a straight battle, physical battle, maybe Pogacar and Vingegaard have the edge on him. But you never know in bike racing. To write off Primoz Roglic, the Giro d'Italia champion, a man who's won several Grand Tours, would be foolhardy because you never know what is going to happen. All it, all it takes is the bunch to squeeze this way and not that way and suddenly the whole landscape of the sport changes you know it often happens you know luck is involved circumstance assuming he's fine for the Tour de France this year he'll be a contender and it was interesting also the quote he came the most interesting quote to me the whole piece about why he left Jumbo Visma and it wasn't he wasn't personal about it he wasn't even upset I think he was just very pragmatic and realistic he said I was proud to be on the podium with those guys you know Sepkus and Jonas Vingegaard but I was also asking myself, what am I doing here? And I just thought that was the immediate pertinent question. And he answered that question in his actions by finding another team to go to, one which will probably suit him a bit better. Objectively speaking, his position was more marginalized on that team and he knew that he had to move on. And a lot of guys, you know, they're in their comfort zone with teams. This is his team. And yet he said, I need to move on. I got about two more years to really have a chance to win the Tour. If I'm on this team, I'm not going to give myself the best chance. I don't want to have to look back and say I didn't give myself those chances. And so he made a very calculated, intelligent decision. And um, Bora instantly stepped up. I mean, they they have instantly are, are they're every day now, from now until the Tour, is about shaping that team around him. It's all in for Primos. And he's being overtly critical with them or you know saying you know why are we doing it this way why don't we do it this way he's making changes on the team using his experience really shaping it around him that's that's where that quote came from that we opened with i'm too old to be quiet too old to be quiet but not too old to win the tour de france i think so next feature in the magazine is called on the fringes and herbie sykes the italian-based writer pitched this feature it's about mgk vis which is quite a long-standing Italian continental team. Nobody in the Anglophone journalistic sphere knows Italian cycling like Herbie does. And he doesn't just know about the champions. He knows about what's going on at all levels of it. And he he knows Italy. He knows cycling. And so whenever we run a piece by him, you know that you're going to get something really in-depth. And so this piece, which is also characteristic of Herbie, is both alternately hopeful and pessimistic about Italian cycling. Italy used to be the beating heart of under-23 cycling. There were all kinds of things going on in Italian cycling back in the day. I seem to remember them winning all three medals in Iswa's World Championships back in the back in the 1990s, for whatever reason. But um, it did underline their dominance as a nation. They had cycling dialed in. They, were, you know, they, they just had a conveyor belt of young talent coming through. But the sad reality is that that is different. Now, the best Italian young riders, as Herbie points out in the piece, go to the World Tour development teams. And that's where it's at with the best young riders these days. The teams tap up the best riders, hire them, get them on board young. They know their numbers are good. They kind of can mould them into 
finely honed athletes. And the effect of that is that the World Tour teams have got a good conveyor belt of talent now. But Italian cycling per se has been shrinking. Those The best riders go to those World Tour development teams and the rest are kind of left to chase the dream. And MGK Vis is one of those outlets. It's a traditional... Italian team it gives young riders opportunities to race it needs to make money so essentially it's a paper play arrangement that they've got and riders have to bring money to the table whether it's their own or whether they can get a sponsor to pay for them that's the reality and the team in return trains them looks after them does the admin and gives them a an opportunity to try and scrape their way to the next level I felt that it was kind of sad that Italian cycling has gone this way. On the other hand, this is the, the new cycling. And this team is a way for people who do fall between the cracks to have their opportunities. So that, that in itself is optimistic. And in some ways, it's a blast from the past, but it's a formula that the Italian cycling was often based on, uh, especially in the development levels. I'll never forget back in the 90s, I was in Tuscany uh, riding with teammates and stuff. And and we, we, we came across this one guy who was... Uh, on the amateur Fanini team, Fanini, you know, was a car salesman who was passionate about bike racing and had a string of teams. And the guy, he had been like the Italian junior national champion. I forget, to be honest, I forget his name. And he was on the edge of going pro with Fanini. And, and we went to see Fanini and we're sitting in the back room with all these posters of, you know, Fanini riders from the past. And the team at the time, I believe, was Mama Fanini, which was dedicated to his mother who had passed away i believe and i remember him sitting there so what are my chances of turning pro you know next year and the guy said to him said do you have no personal sponsor money anybody that can cover you or underwrite you and he didn't and he never went pro and and it was a cold reality but yeah a lot of cycling in italy was was based on these but yeah it's become harder and harder to compete at that level when you got you know major pro teams now that have their own development squads that are fishing the best guys right straight out of the junior levels and then coupled with that the fact that italian racing used to have a wealth of major professional teams that these guys could all hope to go to and that just doesn't exist anymore i mean italians are are still everywhere in in cycling but they don't have italian teams that these guys can dream about joining and gives them a real outlet for talent. And I think that all of that plays comes together and explains, you know, some of the reasons why Italian cycling is not where it was before. But yeah, it was a very good piece following them around on, on some of these smaller races and some of their adventures and misadventures. This piece lifts the lid on how hard things get quite quickly below the World Tour and Pro Conti levels because it's all Tour de France and at that level and the big the big race, it's all glam. I know people do complain that there's not enough money in cycling, but it's doing all right at the top level. But go down two tiers, it's tough, it's hard, there's not a lot of money in it and it takes a lot of money to succeed these days. So this piece is also about that hard truth. Next feature in the mag, James, again, is one of yours and... Love this one to bits because it's, it's everything that magazine journalism should be. This uh, headline is Gentleman, Farmer, Philosopher, Cyclist. And that can only be Guillaume Martin. So tell me about the day you spent on the farm slash theatre slash Aikido Dojo with Guillaume Martin. I've known Guillaume for years and I've, you know, I haven't written about him that often. We just 
chat and discuss and he he's one of those guys he asks as many questions as he answers he's very curious uh, obviously you know he's got a master's in philosophy he probably asks really hard questions as well doesn't he <laughs> <laughs> sometimes he does uh yeah i mean we're we're talking you know major international economic uh, developments and we're talking about his books i mean the guy's written two books and his recent book la société de peloton the society of the peloton was awarded a major award by the académie française you know i mean how cool is that it used to be where if you had a pair of wire rim, rim glasses and you'd signed up for one or two university classes in your career you were called the intellectual and sometimes ostracized for being too smart or aloof or whatever but that's not the case here guillaume sees the unique intelligence and genius of cyclists is something that often is a different kind of intelligence than one that is awarded grades in schools and stuff, but equally valuable. And he explains it in his books in a very interesting way. His first book was called Socrates on a, uh, a Velo. One of the underlying narratives was this fantasy wildcard Tour de France team made up of the great philosophers of the world. And it was a tremendous idea. And he brings to life these guys and, and, and sort of explains what they might be like if they were actually cyclists. And, um, and it, it, was, it was very witty, very, very insightful, very, and, and just a joy to read. And this one, this book is about the duality of an individual sport that is organized by teams and how he's constantly balancing his own individual interests and satisfaction uh, with that of sharing those emotions with a team. He's just this really interesting guy. He was, he was born in Paris, but just weeks after that, his parents bought a farm in Normandy, about an hour and a half out of Paris, and transformed it into this sort of creative center. His mother was a, a comedian and actress. She built a theater out of one of the buildings. They've recuperated like 10 buildings on this farm. His father is in Aikido. He has a, you know, he has a center for that. And then they have you know, donkeys and horses and chickens and goats and whatever. And he's an active farmer. Went to Garmont-Parnasse, just down the street. Got on the train, local train. An hour and a half later, I'm at some village. And, he, you know, and Guillaume's there waiting for him. Picks me up, takes me to the farm. And we hang out for the afternoon. And it was a pouring down rain. It was almost as bad as it was in Provence last week. But he, he couldn't have been happier. He put on his Wellingtons. His hair is a mess. And, you know, just like, you know, he's just getting wetter as we're walking around talking. And his mom was like... This is when Guillaume is in his, his realm. He's never happier than when he's out working on the farm in the rain. doesn't matter to him. You know, we fed the horses and the, and the donkeys and, and the animals. And we talked about why he loves his farm so much. We talked about bike racing. We talked about his books. We talked about everything under the sun. And, the you know, five or six hours later wasn't enough time. You know, we could have talked forever. Um, he's just a, a very engaged person uh, and cyclist. And it's funny because there's a, cu a couple of things struck me. One, you know, when I was an amateur in France, I got a master's degree and that was not of all interest. This is bike racing and, uh, you know, a master's isn't going to get you very far here. And yet Guillaume has managed to be perfectly integrated. Nobody's ever made fun of him, ostracized him for his intellectual interests. I think because he, he really, like, he sees the genius in bike racing. And, and that's out in front in his writing. And he's a bike racer, and he gets good results. He's not a huge winner, but he's always there. I mean, he's twice top 10 of the tour. Fascinating feature, and yeah, not very often we get to have photos of a professional cyclist lugging bales of hay, like mucking around with the horses in his stables, but Guillaume Martin gave us the opportunity to do that. So the next section of the magazine is the same as the title of the magazine, Cycling Will Change the World. 
And it's a series of three features. The first one, I contacted Laura Laker. Uh, you may not know her, James, but she's a, a long-standing cycling journalist in the UK. And she's been on the beat of active travel and travel infrastructure. All the stuff that is it's not glamorous, doesn't make the headlines, but it's at very base level, the most important aspect of cycling is getting ordinary people to normalise being on bikes for short journeys in towns and cities. And Laura went to Barcelona and interviewed a, a, a town planner by the name of Professor Mark Neuenhausen and just talked about how cycling can change cities for the better and how the bike is its just a better way of moving people around. I, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but because people t- the, the average occupancy of a car in the UK is 1.4 people. So a car lane can move around between 600 and 1,000 people per hour. A bike lane moves thousands of people an hour. You know, bus lanes and trains move even more. So if you're thinking about how to get cities moving efficiently, you don't want to be looking at the car. You want to be looking at bikes, bike infrastructure and public transport and facilitating and enabling that. And Laura, she's written about cycling in cities and how it can help things. Uh, we've got an interview with Dame Sarah Storey, who's Britain's greatest ever Paralympian. 17 gold medals across swimming and cycling. Incredibly inspirational figure. She, and she's still an active Paralympian. She plans to go to Paris this year to you know, win even more gold medals. Um, but she also has a job as Manchester Active Travel Commissioner. And I went to visit her in Manchester, not to talk to her about her success in winning bike races, but what even she sees as the probably the most influential and important part of her life as a cyclist, which is getting people on bikes, and she's in a position to do so. So I'm going to run a bit of audio from that interview now. So at the moment, main focus of my role alongside the funding side is supporting the region towards the adoption of Vision Zero. So it's not my plan. It's not something that, obviously, personally, I'd love to see the entire world adopt Vision Zero. But this is something that has to be owned by the leaders. The leaders are here in Greater Manchester work in a cabinet formation with the mayor and the deputy mayor. So there's 11, including the mayor plus the deputy mayor. They each hold a portfolio. Um, so the mayor is the trans has the transport portfolio. They have to own this, and it has to sit in the part of the region that's doing things differently. Because this isn't just a transport piece. This is about enabling people to get on and grow up and grow old in a region which is prosperous, and that sits in lots of different departments on this floor here, um, and it's connected to people's ability to access good houses, good education. If you have access to opportunity, that social mobility part is there as well. So Vision Zero starts as a transport ambition, but actually touches every part of everybody's life. And so that's why it can't be just defined as a nutshell, because once you start going into those other areas, you're looking at children's attainment in school, you're looking at population's ability to be more productive, reduce number of six days and then you're starting to think well actually this is supporting a more uh, efficient and cost-effective NHS and so suddenly you're working in a huge you know number of different areas. That was Dame Sarah's story, Greater Manchester Active Travel Commissioner and the third feature in this little mini section of the magazine about cycling to the world, Vive la Révolution, took a real-world example of how cycling infrastructure 
improves life in cities. It's in your home city of Paris, James, where the mayor, Anne Hidalgo, has very quickly, very boldly built a lot of cycling infrastructure. Hey presto, a lot of people are cycling. So tell me about being out and about in Paris. This is a story that's close to my heart uh, because I have really seen my city transformed in the last, say, three years. I've always cycled for as long as I've lived here. I've always cycled in the city as, uh, you know, if I go over to the velodrome at Longchamp or the hippodrome at Longchamp and ride around that uh, or whatever, I've always cycled. I've always had a city bike uh, for getting around. I've seen the benefits of it. It's a pretty good cycling city because it's not that big. It's easy to get around and you can easily cut your travel time in half um, on a bike. For many, many years, I was one of the few. And then all of a sudden, with COVID, I just saw this city transform. And, you know, we're all stuck in our apartments here. We couldn't, you know, we, we, we couldn't go out. But as soon as people could go out, all the bike lanes that had been put in place just exploded with people. And they were filled. And I was watching them. I would sit on my balcony and just see the bike lane down my avenue. Just all of a sudden, a sea of cyclists. And this is this happened not over. This happened almost in in the t- in months. So it was really fascinating to watch. And why? Because Hidalgo got out in front of it. The infrastructure was there. And then when COVID hit, she's she was like, "All right, people are going to have a choice here. Going back into the metro is not the go-to choice anymore for getting around uh, because of social distancing. So what what's going to happen? Either people are going to go back to their cars." Or they're going to find alternatives. And she's done everything she can to make cycling one of those alternatives. There are, I think, a thousand kilometers of bike lanes. It's very easy to get around on a bike. So I talked to different people who discovered cycling a year ago or have been lifelong cyclists and have seen the changes they've been riding around themselves, like myself. I fully believe this is a prime example of cycling change in the world. And I think cities, towns, the world over will benefit if they start getting to work on this it's it's inevitable it has to happen sooner or later so get to work on it now is my opinion so the rest rest of the magazine bit of a change of pace the next story is a feature by ryan legarek the travel cycling writer i think is the best way of describing him ryan pitched this story it's about cycling in portugal he doesn't identify exactly where they've gone on their their ride and the point is it's about companionship experiencing the real Portugal and being shown around by people who know it. This story is a wonderfully human, experiential account of a ride in Portugal, which begins with a drinking party, continues with a hangover, and then turns into the most beautiful, exhilarating, interesting ride that, to me, I don't really care where Ryan cycled. It's more about how he has experienced it, and that's what is conveyed in this feature. His pieces always incarnate the sense of discovery that bicycling can offer. You know, we talk about freedom cycling offers, but also a sense of discovery. And he goes to these places we wouldn't ever always think about going to and discovers these, you know, you never know what you're going to get with his rides, but they're always new and, and refreshing and, and there's just uncanny things that, that come up and you, you get that with him and, and everything is an adventure. Ryan's a people person as well so he talks to people, he gets to know them. When he's travelling it is not just about getting from A to B and seeing nice landscapes or picturesque towns. It is about engaging with the people. And he he does that more than most. I think he really gets to the heart of what a place is like. And I, the, 
There's also one of the supporting characters in this piece is um, Anna Arendt, who's an endurance cyclist who has suffered a fairly bad injury and had a really hard rehab from that. And Ryan was trying to tell her that maybe this ride shouldn't be so long. You know, he wasn't hadn't done any training, he wasn't that fit, like he didn't want to go above 100 kilometres. She was talking about doing 250, I think. And Anna just said, you know, we are alive and if it gets hard, we will just enjoy being alive a little bit more. And I thought that was the most, most amazing quote. So read this feature if you want to know not just about cycling portable, cycling itself. I think it really conveys that spirit. The next feature, James, is called Cycling Executive Officer. It's an interview with Robert Westman. Now, James, Robert Westman is the CEO of an international pharmaceutical company. He's from Iceland and is a keen cyclist. You know, in Rouleau, we, we like to interview the biggest names in the world, but we also like to see where cycling takes us. And I was very interested to interview interesting people who are into cycling because you know, the, the crossover is our shared passion in life on two wheels and I was talking to Robert Westman's people who said he's international CEO of pharmaceutical company very you know, he's done very very well he's set up two huge uh, one generic and one biosimilar drugs company he took up cycling at a relatively late age and just got really into it and quickly became one of the best cyclists in Iceland which on one hand very impressive and that's the kind of thing that engages our readers uh, the readers are into cycling as a sport but on the other hand Iceland is not a massive cycling country yeah it's got a couple of riders in the top couple of thousand in the world so both male and female but it's, it's not a huge scene so Robert was never going to become a professional cyclist I don't think but he was took it very seriously, became very competitive at it and was targeting top three in the national championships. He was taking part in a race in Iceland and something you need to know about Iceland in the summer, James, is that that it's so far north that you get pretty much 24-hour sunshine but at certain times of the day and night you get very low sunshine. He was cycling down a mountain at speed at a time when the sun was directly in his eyes Somebody stopped a car in the road. He hit it at speed and sustained absolutely horrific injuries. He was lucky not to lose his life. Several fractures of his back, lost a load of teeth, smashed himself up and was in a really, really bad way. Bed bound for 90 days. The rehab was incredibly difficult. This coincided with him setting up a pharmaceutical company um, called Alvatech. And he told me the story of his rehabilitation from this crash, how he managed it, how he manages to run an international business while recovering from this accident. And he still loves cycling. He He's not able to cycle to the level he could, but he still, yeah, he likes to go around Richmond Park, he still pushes hard on the pedals, um, still competitive with himself about it. And has essentially rebuilt himself at the same time as he was building a huge pharmaceutical company. I went to visit Robert at his offices in London and I'm going to run a little bit of audio from our interview which you know in which he can explain a bit better what happened and how he came back from it. I signed up I think two or three days before I picked up the number uh, on the 11th of July 2013 and I always uh, 
even though I know the track extremely well, I bent still. Uh, it's kind of a uphill, downhill, like uh, 9K, back and forth, 90 kilometers. The midnight sun is very low. When you are cycled down, it was straight in my eyes. Right, yeah. Cars overtaking. So I remember when I turned, I saw two, three cars overtaking. And then I just woke up in an ambulance, extremely in a bad condition. So... Uh, uh, I, I didn't know what happened, so basically one of the car, uh, it was a very fast road, apparently stopped in the middle of the road. With a sun in my eyes, I most likely thought he was uh, still uh, you know, ongoing. Yeah. I don't remember anything one minute before the accident. And, uh, so on a time trial, I basically biked uh, on a 48-kilometer into... Uh, into the car with my hat. So basically the T1 and T2, I, I had a complete uh, instable fracture. They went into two pieces. So uh, I basically was, uh, they were gonna first uh, operate, but uh, then uh, on the last minute I was decided I would just be put in a braid. So uh, I was there for like uh, 90 days, just laying in bed. And, uh, and that of course was, uh, I think that was the biggest challenge in my life was not to build the companies or raising six kids or, or anything else. Of course, I was in, as you can imagine, tremendous pain. I mean, uh, I was very badly cut everywhere. I lost uh, most of the teeth and uh, was re really in a bad shape. I don't think there was a big chance I would walk alive or, or at least not be paralyzed it, uh, after, after this one. It was just the ankle where my head came into the car. If it would have been uh, two, three centimeters up on, or down, I would not be sitting here. Mm. Just I went straight in the car in an extremely good uh, condition. Broke, of course, uh, uh, the spine. Actually, the car, uh, I believe, was behind repair. When I woke up in the ambulance, I, I, I saw how long time it took because I had my Garmin on. So I don't remember anything from uh, one minute before the accident because I remember last time when I remember myself. They basically took took one hour to pick me up because uh, they knew I was uh, uh, with a broken spine or expected that and it was pretty bad. It was just a very messy accident. So it took them one hour to get me on board the ambulance. And then when I woke up, of course, already heavily medicated, but uh, I was just freezing cold, shivering. I, I knew I was uh, extremely badly injured. I, of course did not necessarily expect to ever be okay again. I, I knew this was going to be pretty bad. Yeah. So I thought to myself in the ambulance, I just have to wait and see what happens. I was in the hospital, I was on a intensive care, I think, for a week and uh, another week or two in the in the hospital. And I had to lay on my back and uh, he said, if, 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 you do, if, you do, if you do that and it works, then he will be able to be mobile again and... Uh, do sport and live uh, almost uh, fine life. So, so that uh, was the end, and uh, that was kind of the main challenge because I mean, uh, when you lay in bed for ninety days, it's uh, one minute is pretty long to pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not there's to mention one hour. minutes, in... and uh, you wa you wake up like uh, seven, and I mean eight o'clock. You already feel like the day is gone, but it's only eight o'clock, you know. Yeah. And uh, I remember the only time I mentally broke down was that I thought it was sixteen days out of ninety gone but it was just 15 and I, I couldn't believe it I was just uh, traumatized so basically I got uh, this uh, iPad uh, stand which was all my bed and I managed to do a 20 minute session before the blood went because I was already uh, I already was uh, operating Alvotech 
I already got in the first investors and uh, I was already building up a global business in 35 countries with Alvogen. And uh, it a was full-time job. Uh, and it was not kind of time to uh, be fully off. But so I managed to uh, to kind of operate from the bed. But uh, the guys are still laughing because my spending was not uh, because we were pretty heavily medicated. Was not always. Uh, I'm dyslexic, by the way, so they they are used to spelling errors. But this was kind of over and above. I mean, you have a successful business career, but you have always had periods uh, with a. Uh, big challenges and uh, and with this one I mean I could have been thinking why did the car stop and uh, why did I participate in this competition I was not signed in and why did uh, the woman not park uh, the car on the parking lot not middle of the road and I could have been there but uh, when it happened I knew it was just bad and the only I had to spend the energy on uh, kind of finding the way out and same I do in business I mean Many people dwell on it, uh, what happened, why it happened, uh, we need to blame this and that, and uh, we need to continue to talk about it. It's uh, In business, I I always just go to the next step, okay, we, we are here, we're not going to change this, so where are we going? So how are we going to fix it? Maybe you cannot fully fix it. I mean, I didn't know if I could uh, be fully fixed after the accident, but I was definitely going to give it a good shot. So that was Robert Westman. And the next feature is exploring the overlap that both both of us share this overlap in interest, James, in cycling and music. We're both big music fans, both play music. And this feature is called Wheels of Steel. Tell me about this, please, James. I love bike shops and I, and I like record shops. Uh, and because uh, music and cycling are my biggest passions in, in, in life. So I found this shop down in, in the south of France in, the, in this town of Set, which is an old fishing village on the estuary of the Canal de Midi. It has several big music festivals, including a major world uh, music festival by the DJ Gilles Jill, Jill Peterson, you know, who's, who's well known. And it's inspired a fair amount of vinyl collectors. And in this case, uh, a very unique record store called Disco Cyclo. And the guy uh, had worked in the French music industry and left Paris, wanted to do something different, and he wanted to bring together his two passions, riding bikes and collecting vinyl records. And he's also a DJ and just and an avid cyclist, lifelong cyclist, you know, transport, you know, getting around, not a competitor. And so he said, wouldn't it be great to bring the two together in a vinyl record bike shop? People who love to collect vinyl records are people who love to actively spend time doing things. They don't like the passive experience of riding in a car or a bus or whatever. They like to actually go out and ride their bike to get somewhere. And they don't just like want to have an MP3 playing. They actually like putting that vinyl record on a turntable and listening to it and, and sitting down saying, I'm going to listen to this album for the next 36 minutes or whatever it is. And so I thought it was really fascinating that in this little bike shop in this little town in southern France, you sort of had this sort of sociological study about the, the, the overlaps of these, these two activities that many of us uh, both love. It does look like the coolest bike shop I've ever seen. The photo, photos are great. And lastly, James, uh, Art Cycle this month is about Ruth Orkin. And I didn't know anything about Ruth Orkin before you told me about this art cycle. So tell the listeners of Ruler Conversations about Ruth Orkin. Well, I have to admit, you know, she's not a household name in the history of photography. And yet... You know, she had this one iconic, iconic photo of an American woman walking 
down, I believe it was the streets of Naples in the 30s, I think. And all the Italian men looking, whistling, uh, catcalls, whatever, you know. Everybody's probably seen this picture. I mean, it's been, you know, it's posters and tour shops and stuff. So I've, I've known her best photography for years, but I didn't, like, know the name didn't jump out at me. But she's very interesting in that when she was a teenager, 30s, she took her bike and said there was a World's Fair. And she took her bike, just a round town bike, and went across America. Uh, she put her bike in trains or in cars or whatever, and then stopped off at all kinds of places and used her bike to get around, be it Chicago, be it uh, New York, be it, you know, wherever she went, Washington, D.C. And she was discovering, she, you know, she was on her way to the World's Fair in New York, but went to many places far and beyond. And the bike was a mode of transportation. It was a way of discovering all these places. It was freedom for a 17-year-old girl in the 1930s. And it was a formal device because often she would actually, in her notebooks, include pictures of the of some monument or some landscape through the frame or the wheel of a bicycle. And, you know, how many of us today have done these sort of bike selfies, right? You know, we're on a ride, we're in a great place, we put our bike here. I was here on my bike, right? Well, she, in a way, was kind of the pioneer of this this offbeat genre of photography when she was a 17-year-old discovering the country. I just thought it would be a, a, a good feature for Art Cycle, especially this, you know, about how it changes the world, because this is a way of, it, it didn't, it changed her world and she discovered the world on her bicycle. And that's one of the, you know, one of the essential, quintessential um, joys of, of the bike, I think, is that it allows us to, to freedom and to discover and these things which we've talked about several times already today. And this was a case where it happened with a, a young pioneering woman in, the, in America in the 1930s. It was opening up a whole country in a way, wasn't it? And that takes us back to what we were talking about at the start about cycling expanding our world. Uh, that's all for this edition of Ruler Conversations. If your interest has been piqued by any of the features we've talked about today, please consider subscribing by going to ruler.cc and hitting subscribe with the code PODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. And in return, we send you eight times a year a beautiful, immersive magazine which takes deep dives into all aspects of cycling and cycling culture. And we always base our editorial decisions on quality and what is interesting rather than chasing hits. And we hope you'll support us in doing so. James, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure, Ed. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine or visit our website at ruler.cc. This edition of Ruler Conversations was produced by Joseph Perry of Content is Queen. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 